Fighting fires in BC is rewarding in so many ways. It's physically demanding, yes, but that feels like a great achievement. The best feeling is when you've just worked so hard and put it all out on the line and you come out at the end of the day just feeling invigorated but exhausted. That's my favorite day. You're doing things for the province and you're helping residents as well, so it feels really good. I'm Peter McCulley. That's Alora Van Jarrett, currently leading a crew of firefighters in Carameos battling wildfires. We'll talk about the experience of fighting British Columbia wildfires when Today in BC continues. Get fast access to breaking news by signing up now to Black Press Media's free newsletters and stay informed with all the latest news delivered directly to your inbox. You'll have access on any device, so you never have to miss out again on the information you need to know. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Thank you for having me. How long have you been a firefighter, and where did you train? I've worked with BC Wildfire for 13 seasons. Prior to that, I did two years with a contract crew. So training I got mostly on the job on the contract crew. There was a couple days of some basic safety that I had to do before that. So that was my introduction. After that, I went to the RAP attack program. So that's a part of BC Wildfire. It's an initial attack type crew where crews repel into fires that are not accessible by road. I trained there for a month before I was certified as a repeller. That's where I kept working for the next 13 seasons. Last year, 2021, I transferred over to Vancouver Island to the Port Alberni Thunderbirds. That's a unit crew. So that's a different style of firefighter. We're a 20-person crew that goes to sustained action fires, the bigger ones that you hear about on the news. Did you always want to be a firefighter and what drew you to it? I started thinking about firefighting when I was a teenager. I grew up in Nelson, BC, and a lot of people there do seasonal work. At the time, I worked as a ski instructor at Whitewater Ski Hill, which is the best place to go skiing in the interior. So working there, I had friends in ski patrol that would spend their summer firefighting. I just thought it was so interesting. So as soon as I graduated, I tried to get on a crew, and then I never left. So you mentioned you're currently supervisor of the Port Alberni Thunderbirds. How long have you been on the island and where were you previously posted? This was my second year with the Port Alberni Thunderbirds. Before that, I was at the Repel program in Salmon Arm. How many crews are stationed around the province for firefighting and how many firefighters is that? There are 30 20-person unit crews, so the type of crew that I'm on right now, and there's roughly 140 initial attack crews, and those are three-person crews. So altogether, there's around 1,200 firefighters for BC Wildfire. So in the peak of the summer when it's hot and it's not raining, how many fires would be burning at any one time in British Columbia? So the number varies tremendously. It really depends on the amount of lightning there is because that is about 60% of the starts we have are lightning-caused. So some summers you get a ton of lightning that start a lot of fires because there hasn't been a lot of rain associated with that lightning. But some summers it just doesn't work out that way. Any given year can be so different. This year in BC, just shy of 40,000 hectares, or for those of us who have never converted, 75,000 football fields have burned 
so far in British Columbia as the result of fires. And you and your team are currently deployed in the Karameos area. How large a fire have you been battling there? That one was just over 7,000. So a decent size for sure. It certainly had its challenges. A lot of the fire line was down in the community there. But by the time I got there, it had worked its way up onto the mountainside. And that's a lot of work, but it seems a lot more achievable and less stressful when you're not right up against people's homes. We're talking about firefighting teams. What's a shift look like and how many people on a team? On my unit crew, there's 21 people. Sometimes they're 20-person crews, sometimes they're all the way up until 22, but we have 21. A typical day as a crew supervisor, I would start the morning briefing with people on the fire that are filling positions that are above me that have a concept of what's going on, bigger picture. They'll give me a piece of land that they want my crew to work on and some ideas on how to take care of that fire in the area. Then I'll connect with my crew. We'll travel to that part of the fire, usually in our trucks, sometimes by helicopter. When we show up, I'll brief the crew. We deal with all of our safety standards that we need to meet. I'll spend a lot of the day trying to figure out how we're going to work that piece of line and spending my time communicating that to the crew leaders on my crew so that they can get people working on those different tasks. And every day changes. The first day you show up, you're just trying to figure out the land and what kind of tactics will work the best in that area. Then as you settle in, you just grind away at the same type of work for a few days at a time. That'll be a 12 to 14 hour day usually. Then we'll wrap up, have a chat with the crew, see how the day went, review what went well and what we can improve on, and then head back to camp and do it all again. Crash and repeat. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. Is there a support crew with you when you're out fighting fires 12, 14 hours a day? Is there a crew that keeps you fed and hydrated, or do you do that yourself? It depends. Sometimes when we go to a fire, we'll spike camp if there's a fire up some back road somewhere and there's no facilities around we might set up a camp a couple of kilometers away from the fire even a kilometer away and live out of our tents a unit crew has 72 hours worth of food and cooking gear and all that good stuff so we can take care of ourselves for the first few days beyond that on a bigger incident like the Karameos Creek fire that we were just at they'll set up a large camp where hundreds of firefighters can stay and there they'll have caterers, people that'll do your laundry overnight. You're still living out of your tent, but you can just show up and get fed at night, get fed in the morning and grab your bagged lunch and head to work. There's also wash trailers, which is awesome. (laughs) And one thing that they introduced last year was a program called the Occupational Athlete. And they have athletic therapists come to camp. And in the evenings, they'll work with different people that are having pain or having some muscle issues. They'll work with them and try and help get them through those times and give them some relief. How do you assess the situation when you're approaching a fire? Take us through the steps. When I show up to a fire, the first thing I'm going to do is gather information from people who have already been there. And if that hasn't happened, I'm going to gather in the information myself. We have these standard protocols that we follow and we have about a million acronyms that we use to get through those protocols. One of them is our LACES, and that stands out for lookouts, anchor points, communications, escape routes, and safety zones. Those are five points that we have to establish before we can 
dive into that fire. So do we have ourselves or somebody that's going to look out for us from afar? If this fire starts to blow up, are we going to be able to see it or are we going to be too deep into the forest that we can't see something happening? Anchor points. An anchor point is when you start up a line, you need to make sure that the area behind you is safe. It's essentially a place to build off of. Communications, are we able to get out on the radio to help? If we have a medical situation, are we going to be able to get a helicopter or a medic in there to get us out? Escape routes, again, back to the fire blowing up. If it starts to go, do we have a way to get off of that? Because BC has a lot of pretty extreme terrain, and there are some places where you're going to have a real hard time getting off the hill if you haven't checked it out first and made sure there's a good escape route. And then safety zones. Is there a place you can go that's going to be safe from the fire behavior that could be associated with the fuels on that fire that you're fighting? That's the very basics before you step in. Of course, there's all sorts of other things to consider, like whether that fire needs to be fought. A lot of those decisions are somewhat out of my sandbox. Sometimes there are fires that we don't fight at all. If they're up in the high country and there's other priorities elsewhere, we might just leave it. So it sounds like you have a pretty tight unit, a pretty tight team. What's the team culture, the crew culture? So the crew culture is something we work on a lot in the spring. When things are slow, we're doing a lot of training. And during that time, we're putting our minds and our hearts towards making a cohesive crew. The cohesive crew is a safe crew. If you're out on the line and you don't trust the people you work with, you're not going to have a productive and safe crew we build ourselves a charter and we have a shared goal of what we want the crew to look like. We do a lot of fun and really challenging things to expand on that culture and get to know each other. You've been fighting fires for 13 years in BC. What's the biggest fire you've been a part of fighting? So in 2017, there was the Elephant Hill fire. That was around 200,000 hectares. My role on that fire was actually just to build helipads so that other crews could get access to those hard-to-access places, and also if there was a medical situation so that we could get those people back off the hill. That was the type of work I was doing there. I was on the front lines, but I wasn't around the residential area on that fire. There's a lot of stuff that you don't see when there's a fire coming close to town. There's a lot of work going on in the background, and that was our role there. Have you been involved in fires where homes were lost? My second year was the first time that I was involved in a fire where homes were lost. That was actually in Alberta. I don't know if you remember in 2011, there was the Slave Lake fire. That really hit me emotionally because where we were staying, we drove through town to get to our section of line every day and houses were completely burned. That was the first time I saw that and it really brought it home. And it really makes the work that we do feel meaningful. When Today in BC continues, Alora Van Jarrett talks about assessing a fire and evacuating residents. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. Laura, the speed of which a forest fire can travel when there's no one ahead of it fighting it can be astonishing. A fire can move incredibly fast. 
And when you say there's nobody ahead of it, when there's a fire moving really fast, there will be no one ahead of it because it's just too dangerous. Even aircraft can't do anything when a fire's gained a ton of momentum and is burning what we call at rank six, the highest fire behavior that we have on our ranking scale. If it's burning at that intensity, there's essentially nothing that we can do at that point. What are the factors that go into considering whether or not to wade into a forest fire with the attitude of extinguishing it or allowing a fire to burn itself out? There are three types of response for different fires. One is full response, where there are different resources that we're trying to protect, be it people's homes or infrastructure, roads, power lines, or even timber resources. So if there's values like that that are needing protection, then we'll go full response on it. Firefighters, aircraft, all the resources that are available to that incident will be deployed and we'll do everything we can to get that wrapped up. There might also be a modified response fire. At the toe of the hill, there may be some houses that we need to protect. Further up the hill, it's inoperable terrain, so too steep, cliffy, dangerous. If the fire is burning up there, then we'll just let it burn up in that direction and protect the values at the bottom. There's also monitor response, which really isn't much of a response other than BC Wildfire is monitoring they'll send a helicopter out to take a look if it was up in the subalpine or something like that, just so that they know what's going on with it and seeing if it is maybe working into areas where they don't want a wildfire. On your cruise, do you have many seasonal firefighters, those who might be returning to school in the fall or just working for the summer? So just this coming week, we have two students leaving to go back to school, and then the following week we have three more BC Wildfire loses a quarter of their staff early to go to school. That being said, almost all wildfire staff are seasonal. So the actual firefighters will start in March and work until the end of October. And that gives us a good buffer on each side to do our training. So, Alora, this is probably a silly question, but are most fires caused by humans? That is not a silly question. Recent statistics show that 60% of wildfires are caused by lightning and the other 40 are caused by human. And that could be anything. We always hear about cigarette and campfires, but there's sparks coming off of people's trailers on highways or power lines coming over on a tree. Human cause can mean a number of different things, certainly including the stuff that everybody thinks about, but also some abstract and odd circumstances in there as well. Residents likely don't have a lot of time to evacuate when the call comes when you're fighting the fire close to a community. How can people be prepared for such an event in their area? I would say there's two ways people can be prepared. Prior to a wildfire even starting, there's a lot of work you can do around your home to get prepared. And that information can be found at FireSmart. That's a program that is in place in BC and actually all across Canada. And there are some really useful tools and a lot of local knowledge on how you can do that best in your region. When there is a fire close to your home, there's sort of two things that are going to happen. You'll probably start by getting an evacuation alert. And then beyond that, when there is like imminent danger to your home, you're going to get an evacuation order. To prepare yourself for those things, it's really important to stay in touch with your local government and follow social media by BC Wildfire. 
they'll tweet different updates on fires. Stay aware of all the information that's getting passed along by those different medias. I know one story I was reading about recently was the residents were given a heads up a couple of days in advance that they might have to evacuate. And when the call came, they had an hour. That first call would have been the alert that they're getting, the evacuation alert. And that is saying there's a fire in the area and it is not at imminent risk of burning over your home. When they got the evacuation order and had an hour, things can happen to a wildfire that make it change dramatically in a short amount of time. So you could get a 180 degree wind shift and all of a sudden the fire is burning in the opposite direction where the crews have been working and putting in time. That can catch people off guard and then make those decisions have to happen and get people out of there really quick. Obviously, to fight fires for the BC Wildfire Service, you have to be in pretty good shape if you're out there for two weeks at a time and maybe with four or five days off and then off again for another couple of weeks. And you took that to the limit a couple of years ago, just pre-COVID. You were on the world's toughest race, the Echo Challenge Fiji, hosted by Bear Grylls. That sounds like a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Could you tell us about it? Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I had never heard of the Eco Challenge. It was a TV show that ran, I think, 11 years prior to 2019. And I didn't grow up with TV, so I never heard of this thing. I had also never heard of an adventure or expedition race, and that's what it was. I had a friend from the Rap Attack program, so a wildfire fighter, reach out to me and ask me to do this race with him and a couple other people from the crew. He gave me a few details. He mentioned it was going to be televised, and I naively thought at the time that it was just going to be like a YouTube clip or something about this race, but it turned into this very big production. I committed before I even knew what it was. And I had to train for this thing that I was totally in the dark about. It was like 700 kilometers and 11 (laughs) days. I'm glad you have those numbers because (laughs) that's something I did not pay attention to. It was a long time and I was very out of it most of the time. It was canoeing and paddleboarding and rafting and mountain biking and and trekking a lot of different sports all packed into one i think people often see it like you said you see it as this physical challenge and i think for me it was and for a lot of people it's quite mental because you're only sleeping for a few hours every few days and you are in such a strange state of mind with that lack of sleep. You don't even feel your body. I think if you're far less fit, but far better at not sleeping, you do really well in that race. Would you do it again? I would do it again. We did another race at the end of last season, actually. There was a similar but smaller expedition race in Penticton, and that was a four and a half day race. And I did it with the same team and it was a lot of fun. Much colder than Fiji, but nice to be on home ground. Laura, what advice would you have for someone thinking about training to fight wildfires for the BC Wildfire Service? To start with the physical side of things, you do need to pass a fitness test to get into BC Wildfire. And it's not easy. It's a test that really gets your cardio going as well as your strength. So you can't just be a long distance runner. You also can't just be a weightlifter. You have to be some combination of those things. So that's the type of training I would recommend. Grab a pack and do hill sprints with a pack on. Beyond that, it's important to have 
your first aid training, specifically your occupational first aid, at least your level one. Even better would be your level three training. You need to get your online application in usually sometime in January, and then there'll be a selection process. Fighting fires in BC is rewarding in so many ways. It's physically demanding, yes, but that feels like a great achievement. The best feeling is when you've just worked so hard and put it all out on the line and you come out at the end of the day just feeling invigorated but exhausted. That's my favorite day. I'd like to thank Alora Van Jarrett for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart and Google Podcasts. Mm-hmm.